Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. How are we doing with them? There we go. Um, my name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad that you are all here worshiping with us this morning. Whether you are here in person with us or if you're watching online, we are so glad that you're joining us. Uh, and as Joel said, happy Mother's Day to any of you who are mothers. Um, I like to remember that there are a lot of different types of moms in the world, right? There are biological moms, adoptive, foster care, uh, people who just step in and fill the role of mom, people who are spiritual mothers. There's so many different ways that that plays out in the family of God. And so I want to celebrate all of those this morning um, and just say happy Mother's Day to all of you. Okay, so if you've been worshiping with us for a little while, you know that we have been going through some of the wisdom literature of the Bible. So we started in Proverbs and then kind of worked our way, and now we are doing a series on the book of Psalms. So we will be doing that just for a few weeks here. And before we jump in this morning, um, I would just like to start in prayer. So please pray with me. Lord, we know that wisdom starts with the fear of you. That is what we have been talking about in the sermon series. And so, Lord, we stand in awe of you this morning. Um, we praise you, and we come together to worship you. It's what we do every Sunday um, and throughout our week. So, Lord, I just pray that you would help us remember that wisdom as we dive into our topic this morning of wisdom in sex and love and relationships, that we would continue to come back to you and remember that all wisdom is coming from you. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you've never heard of Song of Songs before, it's a book that's actually filled with love poetry. Uh, it's the Song of Songs, it's a phrase that kind of can, means like the best of the best, right? So we talk about like the holy of holies elsewhere in scripture. And Song of Songs has kind of a similar meaning to it. So this is meant to be like, this is the best song or the, the most song. There's not great language to translate it. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And these songs uh, are some of the most true songs, right? The song of songs about love and about um, wisdom on love and sex and relationships. And you might be thinking, why would anything about love or sex uh, be in the Bible? That seems kind of strange. And maybe you grew up in a church that never talked about sex, and maybe you grew up in a home that never talked about it. And so to hear it talked about in scripture might be a little strange at first if you're coming from that context. And so one of the commentaries I read kind of had an answer to that question or kind of had a response to the idea of like, why would this be in our Bible? So Tremper Longman, he says, uh, in answer to the question, what is the book song of Song of Songs doing in the canon? He says, sexuality is a major aspect of the human experience, and God in his wisdom has spoken through the poets of the song to encourage us as well as warn us about its power in our lives. And at Rest City, we agree. We think sexuality is a major aspect of the human experience, and it's also something that's talked a lot about in culture and in the world around us. And so one of our main goals as a is to help disciple you in all areas of life, right? We don't want to just say, hey, we're only here to talk about what it looks like to be a uh, Christian in, you know, I don't know, parenting and what you do at work or, you know, kind of the main things you might think of. But we say we want to help disciple you in all areas of life. And because sexuality is an area of your life that you have to process and think about and talk about with other people, 
that we want to talk about that here as well. And the Bible talks about it too, as we've been talking about. So Song of Songs, I love how um, Longman points out that Song of Songs wants to encourage us in our sexuality, as well as warn us about some of the power of it in our lives. And so one of the ways that Song of Songs does that is through a piece of wisdom that is repeated three times throughout the poems. So we're going to look at that wisdom today, um, and we're going to look at it first in chapter three. So chapter three, one through five says, all night long, this is the the woman speaking. If you weren't here last week, Joel kind of talked about how there are different characters in the book. There's the woman, uh, the man, and then this kind of like group of women who are the woman's friends. So this is the woman speaking. And she says, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city, though it's streets and through its streets and squares, I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the cities. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found the one my heart loves. Oh, did I have the right? There we go. Uh, I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house, to the room to, of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, so she's talking to her friends, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. So the woman is looking for her love, and when she finally finds him, she says, I'm going to bring him to my mom's house, <laughs> strange, um, to the room where I was conceived. Again, a little weird maybe, but if that works for you, then I guess that's fine. Um, but basically she's saying like, we're gonna go get a room. And then the poem stops. It doesn't continue on from there. And she gives this piece of advice to her friends. And this is the piece of wisdom that's repeated multiple times throughout the song. She says, don't awaken love until it so desires or until the right time. And this pattern of her looking for her love, trying to find him, finding him, and then stopping and giving this warning to her friends happens three times through the eight poems of the book. And as a former English major who studied a lot of poetry, if we see something repeated, we have to pay attention to it. It's calling attention to, this is something important, this is a theme throughout the book, this is something you need to stop and to really think about what the significance of it is. And so this important piece of wisdom, that we shouldn't awaken love until the right time, is something that we are really going to focus in on today. And it fits well with one of the other pieces of wisdom that Joel talked about last week. So if you were here last week, um, he talked about this piece of wisdom from chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, that says, For love is as strong as death, its jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. So it's speaking to this powerful nature of love. Love is powerful. It's strong, it's enduring, it's unquenchable. And so it's wise to not awaken it until the proper time. And this piece of wisdom that we see in Song of Songs, I feel it kind of pushes up against some of the wisdom that we may find in other places. Uh, when I think about how the culture talks about sex, or even when I think about how the church has talked about sex, I think it has two kind of equal and opposite errors that it often lands in. 
So before we don't jump into the, the wisdom of the scripture that we should wait and not awaken love until its proper time, I want to talk about the wisdom that we see in culture and often in the church. So one of those pieces of wisdom is the idea that sex is just physical, right? It can be casual. Um, you should do it whenever and however and with whomever you want. And that's kind of what we often hear. That's kind of what we see in TV shows. It's just what's kind of the popular view of sex. And then the opposite, the other extreme that I think we often see, and this happens more in church culture and kind of have, has happened over the last, I don't know, a couple of decades, is that this view that sex is so spiritual that if you mess it up, if you do anything that's wrong, it's like damaging you forever and it endangers your salvation. It's this really big, scary, spiritual thing. So we've got these two extremes uh, and both of them are pretty extreme views of sex. One says, just do whatever. Sex is just sex. It doesn't matter. And the other says, like, it's the most important thing ever in the whole world. <laughs> and I want to talk about these because I think they're both attempting to answer the question, when is the right time to awaken love, as Song of Songs says? Or when is the right time to have physical intimacy with somebody? And so we're going to talk about that. I think let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about culture first, and let's talk about what the church has said, and then we'll talk about what Song of Songs is saying to us. So when I look at culture, um, the thing you may have often heard described as this kind of view of like sex is just casual, it's just physical, is often described as uh, hookup culture. And according to Wikipedia, the ultimate source of wisdom, I'm kidding, don't use Wikipedia as a source, um, except I'm going to do it, so I'm not setting a good example. They say, hookup culture is one that accepts and encourages casual sex encounters, including one-night stands and other related activity, without necessarily including emotional intimacy, bonding, or a committed relationship. And when you look at the history of it, hookup culture actually started way back in the 1920s when cars and entertainment started to become more available to people. So previously to having cars around, if you wanted to hang out with someone that you were interested in as like a, a partner, you had to have them come over to your parents' house and hang out with you, and likely the parents were there the entire time. So when cars were invented and became more accessible to people, it was the first time that like, teenagers really had the chance to kind of go off and be with this person outside of their homes and the eyes of their parents. And so things started to change. People kind of started to have more freedom, and especially more freedom in their romantic relationships. Fast forward a few decades, uh, and hookup culture really picks up in the 1950s and 1960s, 1960s during what people often called the sexual revolution. And a lot of things played a role in this um, increase in kind of the idea of hookup culture. And one of them was some of the media that was being produced at the time. So this is the time when Playboy started. Um, this is the time when there was, had previously been a ban on erotic novels and that got overturned. Um, pornographic movies started to be made. Birth control started to be widely available. There were a lot of other things that kind of played into this increase in the idea of hookup culture and having more freedom um, in sexuality. 
Fast forward another couple of decades, we get to like the early 2000s, um, and there's plenty, this is when it's like really becoming very mainstream. There's movies even with it in the title, right? I was remembering movies like Hooking Up, No Strings Attached, Friends with Benefits, <laughs> all became very popular. It literally had the idea of hookup culture in their name. And now, we have things like dating apps that are, some of them are based purely on trying to help people hook up with other people. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that all of these things are bad. <laughs> I'm not against cars or movie theaters or birth control or dating apps. I'm not saying all of those things are bad. But this idea of hookup culture has had an effect on us and on the way we view sex. And that is something I think we should talk about. On one hand, it seems to affect people emotionally. They've actually studied this, and the first study to investigate the issue of self-esteem and hookups um, showed that both men and women who had engaged in, uncommitted sexual, in, in an uncommitted sexual encounter had lower overall self-esteem compared with those without uncommitted sexual experiences. So it seems to have an effect on people's emotions and the way that they view themselves. It also leads to some kind of blurred lines about what's appropriate and what's not. And this is something I think we've really seen a reckoning with in the last few years. Um, there was an article I read in the Washington Post that I felt like put this really well. Uh, it was written by someone named Elizabeth Bruning, and she talked about how it, the article is titled that it's time for a new sexual revolution. And this article came out kind of in the middle of the Me Too movement, and there had been an actor, a comedian, who had been accused of sexual misconduct. And when the story came out, people were kind of like confused and unsure, like, is this sexual assault or is it not? And there was kind of some debate about it. And I'm not trying to get into any of that, but in response to the debate, Elizabeth Bruning makes the point that we ought to appreciate that sex is a domain so intimate and personal that more harm can be done than in most social situations. And that given that heightened, heightened capacity for harm, we should expect people to operate with greater conscientiousness, concern, and care in that domain than in others. So she's basically asking the question. She's like, okay, so we've been saying as a culture and kind of as a society that sex is casual, it doesn't matter, it's physical, it's just like any other social interaction. And she's raising the question, if it really is just like any other social interaction, then why is the potential for harm so much greater if something goes wrong? So she compares it to a dinner party, and she kind of makes the point of like, yeah, if you have a dinner party and a guest overstays their welcome, it might be annoying. You might be like, wow, when is this person ever going to leave? But it's not something that's traumatic, right? It's not something that's going to cause you deep harm because of this person overstaying their welcome. And if sex it really is just any other casual social interaction, then why is it so different that when someone pushes boundaries in sex or does something the other person doesn't feel comfortable with, that the harm is so much greater. So she finishes her article by saying, demanding an expansion of empathy and responsibility when it comes to sex isn't regressive, it's a sexual revolution in its own right. It's silly to think we would, only needed, we would have only needed one. So overall, we see in culture, in our lives, that there is a consequence or a potential for pretty serious harm when we view sex as only casual and only physical. 
Okay, on the other hand, let's look at the other opposite uh, extreme here when we view sex as only spiritual. So if you are someone who grew up in the church, um, you may have heard this referred to as purity culture. And I admittedly did not grow up in purity culture, so I had to do a little bit of research. Um, but it's basically an idea that promoted a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage, uh, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, purity rings, and even events such as purity balls. So if you, like me, are not familiar with this, um, purity pledges were basically vows that they asked teenagers to sign, saying that they were going to abstain from sex before marriage. Purity rings were silver rings that were worn kind of like as a symbol that they had decided to take this pledge. And purity balls were father-daughter dances where um, it was like a formal event, and at the ball, the father would sign a pledge um, that he would be an example of purity and model integrity for his daughter. And the whole movement, again, understanding the history, I think understanding the history of this stuff is just helpful to know how do we get where we are today. And it began in the 1990s, around then, when the people who were kids and teenagers during the sexual revolution, when they started to grow up and have kids of their own, they were like, oh crap, <laughs> we don't know if we want this for our children. Um, and so they started something else that was kind of this purity movement. So they sort of took the pendulum that had swung all the way this way, and they swung it super far in the opposite direction. And this view of sex that was incredibly extreme and really um, hyper-focused on it also had some consequences that people probably didn't expect it to have. So a study published in 2009 found that sexual behavior of teens who had taken purity pledges did not differ from that um, of closely matched non-pledgers. They also found that um, the sexually transmitted disease infection rate of those who had taken the pledge was basically about the same as those who had not taken the pledge. It also has turned out to be very confusing um, for some people who waited, kind of who grew up in this purity culture and had this idea that sex was like the biggest, most important thing in the world, that when they got to marriage and started to have sex and it wasn't immediately like amazing and perfect and everything they had ever dreamed of, it was very confusing for them. They also kind of wrapped up in this purity culture movement was an idea that if you waited to have sex until you were married, then your marriage would be perfect. And as you can imagine, that did not work because no marriage is going to be perfect um, and we're all sinners. So the, there was a lot of letdown around the, the purity culture movement. And again, I don't think that all of what they're doing is wrong. Right? I'm going to come out and say, as we'll, we'll get to it in the rest of the sermon, but we really believe that sex should be reserved for marriage. So they got that right, but they ended up taking it to an extreme um, that, in my opinion, almost is a little like cultish in some ways, uh, that ended up having consequences that they didn't maybe foresee and didn't intend. So why do neither of these options work? Why do neither of these extreme versions of sex where you say sex is just physical, it's totally casual, or sex is so spiritual, it's the biggest deal in the world, why do neither of these options actually give us a, a good response to how we should view sex? And I think the answer is that they're both trying to separate soul from body, so to speak, right? You have this over-physical view of it or over-spiritual view of it, but that's not actually how sex works. 
It is something physical that we do with our bodies, but you can't deny that there is an emotional aspect to it. And sex itself, uh, the body itself, isn't bad or unspiritual, but it's meant to be enjoyed in the proper context like Song of Songs tells us. And Song of Songs isn't the only place in the Bible that we see this. The Apostle Paul hits on both of these ideas in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 17. He says, or he's talking in, to them in a letter, and he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Did you not know that our, your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So if you actually think about the context that Paul was writing in, uh, people in Paul's time had a similar idea that the physical world kind of didn't matter all that much. They had sort of a casual view of it, the way that we do now. They had this focus, uh, as we often do too, on finding your true inner self, right? It's all about having this experience and finding some kind of spiritual knowledge that it's going to free you and help you become the true you or, or become, you know, everything you're meant to be or everything you dream of. It's something we see in our culture and in Paul's. And so the idea is kind of that if you don't, if, if it all is about just finding your true self, then what you do with your body doesn't really matter that much. So they say, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. So it's kind of saying, like, the physical stuff doesn't matter. Our actual bodies, they, they kind of believed were, like, not that big of a thing. And so they're like, who cares what we do, right? I can follow my sexual appetite. I can follow my physical appetite. I can eat what I want. I can sleep with who I want. It all is going to be, like, burned or destroyed in the end, so it doesn't matter. That was kind of their viewpoint. Um, and it led them to have this view that sex was just just physical and just, just casual. And Paul is here to say, no, that's actually not true. He says, don't you know that whoever unites himself with a prostitute is one with them in body? And then he cites Genesis, that creation story of Adam and Eve, um, and the fact that they become one flesh. He takes it one step further in saying, it's not just a physical union when they do that, it's actually a spiritual one. And this is something that I think if you've ever been physically intimate with somebody and then that relationship has ended for some reason, I think this is something you know, right? Like people have experienced this in a way that it's really difficult when you have that type of close intimacy with someone and there, there is a break in that intimacy. Because the physical isn't just physical. It affects us on a deeper level. It affects us emotionally and even spiritually in different ways. I think this is why things like sexual assault and sexual violence are so traumatic for people. Because it's not just a physical thing, but it truly affects us in our soul and in our spirit. We cannot separate physical intimacy from other types of intimacy. It's just not how God created us. And I mean, when you really think about, you know, I reference those movies that are a little outdated now from the 2000s. But if you really think about any movie where, or any TV show where two characters are like, oh yeah, we're going to hook up, but we're just going to be friends. We're not going to like get romantically involved. 
almost always one of them develops feelings for the other and then they end up together in the end, right? I know that's kind of maybe just because that's how it's a happy ending and we like to watch movies that have happy endings. But I also think it's a, it's a truth that happens. When we are physically connected to someone, there is often a spiritual or emotional intimacy that comes along with it. And on the other hand, in the passage, Paul also points out that the body and the desire for physical intimacy isn't bad either. So while purity culture or maybe the church would have led you to believe that like sex is just bad, just don't think about it, don't engage in it, Paul says the body is for the Lord. And the way he backs that up is by saying that Jesus was raised from the dead, his whole body, and that one day we will be too. So God chose to resurrect Jesus in his full body. He could have done it differently, right? He could have, I don't know how it would have worked, but he could have just had us be like floating souls or spirits or something. But he said, no, I'm raising the entire body from the dead, and I'm going to bring that into new creation because it's that important. It's that worthy of being redeemed. And so if God thinks that our bodies are worthy enough to be raised from the dead, to be totally redeemed and made new and brought into new creation, then I think we should value our bodies as well. And even if you think about just the way that God created us in the beginning, Adam and Eve, Joel talked about this last week a little bit, how they were naked and had no shame. And it was a good thing. Physical intimacy and the desire for that is not a bad thing. It was not created bad. But it has been uh, used incorrectly. And it does have consequences when it's used incorrectly. That's what Song of Songs is trying to help us understand. So Song of Songs is, actually has a very positive view of sex. But it reminds us that it deserves to be in its proper context. And that context is marriage. Remember the line that the woman repeats, don't awaken love before it's time. And if you're thinking, yeah, but how do we know that the characters in Song of Songs are actually married in any of these points? Or how do you know, like, where are you getting the idea that marriage is the correct place for this? And in his commentary, um, Longman says that in some poems, the man and the woman are probably courting. So you have to remember, there's eight different poems in this book. And in some of them, they're probably just dating. But in others, the intimacies, he says, reach an in intensity that the biblical worldview would have only thought appropriate in the context of public commitment or marriage. And honestly, if you read Song of Songs, if you're anything like me, some of it might make you blush a little bit because like Longman says, it gets pretty intense. And so you have to remember when the Bible was written and they would have never had these poems included in the Bible if it was not understood that it was in the idea of marriage or in public commitment, because that was the culture at the time, not just of the church, but of, of everybody. And I think the big question that people ask now is, well, why marriage now, right? That's the rest of the culture doesn't necessarily hold to that view, so why do we still have to hold on to it? Sure, maybe you get a tax break or, you know, I don't know, you think like that's maybe a reason, but other than that, there's not a whole lot. Maybe you watched people get divorced in your own family or in your own friends and you saw how difficult it was. Maybe you've seen unhealthy marriages and think, yeah, that's just really not something that I, I want or something I think is, uh, you know, right. But the most compelling reason that I see in the Bible for saying that sex should be reserved for marriage is that the intimacy in marriage mirrors our relationship with Jesus. In short, our spiritual union with Jesus is meant to be a model of our physical union with other people. 
And don't get weird about it, it's just a metaphor. It's not literal. But when we choose to believe that Jesus is the true Messiah, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross sacrificially for us and was raised again, and when we follow him as Savior and as Lord, we are united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And Paul actually uses the analogy of marriage to describe our relationship to Jesus in a couple of different places, in Romans 7, and then he uses the analogy of marriage to describe the church's relationship with Jesus in Ephesians 5. And I think marriage is an apt comparison for um, the spiritual union because you give yourself wholly and completely and exclusively to that person. So think about these common wedding vows, right? Things like forsaking all others and remaining true to this one person as long as you both shall live, or to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until parted by death. So think about that. We've probably all heard those words before. And now think about how we're called to love the Lord in Scripture. We're called to love the Lord with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole strength, and our whole mind. We're called to have no other gods before him and to be exclusively following him. We're called to surrender every area of our life to him and our relationship with him. As Julie Slattery puts it in her book, she says, your sexuality isn't just about what you choose to do with your body. It's about living out a holy metaphor within the messiness of a fallen and broken world. There's a much bigger picture of sex than our culture has, or that our, even that the church culture has given us. Sex has a much higher calling than, just like the rest of our life, we're called to use it to glorify God. Our spiritual union with Christ is meant to be our guide in how we choose to physically unite ourselves with others. And I think some people might think that sounds restrictive, but actually I think there's some element of God doing this for our benefit too because he knows the heartache of having lost intimacy with someone when he has already had it. If you think back to the garden, he had this closeness with Adam and Eve, not in a sexual way, but in an intimate friendship type of a way, where he could be with them and they had no secrets, no hiding. It was 100% open, and they had this great communication. If you read the passage, it says that they would like go for walks in the cool of the day, Right? I like to, you know, Joel and I like to walk our dog together at the end of the day sometimes. It's just like a nice way to decompress and connect with one another and have this intimacy. And God had this with Adam and Eve in such a unique way. And he had that broken when sin came into the world. He no longer had that intimacy. Adam and Eve hid from him. They covered themselves. They had this barrier in between their relationship. And the rest of the story of the Bible shows the great lengths that God is willing to go in order to bring that intimacy back together. He makes covenants with his people saying, I will be faithful to you forever. And they break those covenants. They say, yep, we're going to choose and follow and worship other gods. But he keeps coming back to them. He keeps making covenants with them. And ultimately, he sends his son, Jesus, to repair the relationship between us and him. He has Jesus die on the cross to take on all of the sin of the fallenness of the world, all the brokenness of all of the relationships that we experience. And on the cross, Jesus, that's defeated. And when he raises again, he's raised again, we have this opportunity now to have that unique intimacy with God again. We can approach God. We don't have to hide from him. We can have that deep, 
close relationship with him through Jesus. And this relationship is meant to guide how we think about other deep, close relationships in our life. As we've talked about in the wisdom series, God created the world so that the pieces of the wisdom that he gives would be kind of woven into creation. And the woman in Song of Songs picks up on this and when she gives her encouragement to not awaken love before it's time. So as we wrap up this morning and kind of think about application for all of this in our lives, I think the first one is just to follow the Song of Songs examples. Heed the wisdom that the woman gives. Sex is good and even celebrated in these love poems, um, but it should be reserved for the proper context. Listen to the warning of the woman and think about how your physical intimacy should be reserved and can be reserved for the one time where it's going to be committed and fully, deeply, intimately known. I think the other takeaway is that intimacy isn't just a physical thing. In the same way that sex isn't just physical, neither is intimacy. Uh, Gary Chapman talks about how there are, he gives five different sides of intimacy. And all of them can actually be experienced whether you are married or not. So whether you are married now, whether you're not married now, whether you never plan to be married, you can still experience intimacy and we have been designed to experience it. So here are the five things that he kind of gives as ways to experience intimacy. The first one is intellectual. And this doesn't mean you have to talk about like highly intellectual topics. It's just, what are you thinking about, right? What's been going on in your mind? What's something you keep coming back to? Even if it's something silly, right? Joel and I will often ask if we're at the end of a work day, um, because <laughs> we can't ask how work was because we work together. So we have to come up with other ways to um, have that intimacy. And you know, I'll often ask like, what's something you've been thinking about? And sometimes it's something really deep, sometimes it's fantasy football, and that's fine. It's good to still talk about those things and have those conversations. And you can do that with anybody, a friend, a spouse, uh, anybody in your life. The second is emotional. What have you been feeling lately? If you're not someone who's super connected to their emotions, I, this sounds cheesy, but honestly, I recommend it. Google a feelings wheel, right? You know, those things that show you here are all the different emotions you could experience and just take a look at it. Say, what have I been feeling today? And communicate that with another person in your life. Social intimacy, right? Like do things with one another, hang out. And hopefully now with, you know, restrictions changing and people getting vaccinated, that's something we can do a little bit more easily. Maybe that's hobbies, activities, uh, or even just the normal like everyday life things like grocery shopping or whatever it is. Spiritual, talk about Jesus, right? Talk about scripture. This is why our community groups are based around having time to study the Bible together because we think this is a, a type of intimacy that we don't naturally have in a lot of our relationships. And then the last one is physical. And that doesn't have to just be sex, right? So if you have, if you just have friends in your life or whatever, hugs, you know, pats on the back, you know, a touch on the arm, as long as it's all like appropriate and, you know, desired from both sides, like that's a good thing to have. Um, and hopefully with COVID coming to an end, we can, um, or maybe not an end, but at least becoming safer, hopefully we can kind of have some more of that intimacy in our life. And I say all of this just because we are wired for intimacy. It is how we are created. It is a good thing, but we need to be wise in how we pursue it. And if you haven't been following this wisdom in your life or if you've had times where you haven't, I just want to make sure that before we end that you know that you are not doomed <laughs> because of this. You're not condemned. 
uh, we're going to talk a lot about what it looks like to um, sort of heal from love awakened before its time in the last sermon of this series, so in a couple of weeks if you're here. But because that's a couple of weeks from now, I want to make it very clear and remind you now that there is nothing that the blood of Jesus cannot cover. There is no sin that is so bad or so deep that you can't uh, experience love and grace and forgiveness in Christ. And so if you are feeling that, if you're feeling convicted in any way, uh, I just encourage you to go to him and to pray to him. Talk to other people in your life. If you have um, people in your community group or if you want to talk to me or Joel, we are always available for that. Uh, But we just want you to know that you are, as much as maybe church culture maybe would have said in the past, you are not doomed if you don't follow this wisdom. Uh, But we do feel like this is like the healthiest option for you. And so we want to encourage you in that direction. And as we wrap up uh, and we're going to move into a time of worship, we're actually going to practice confessing and talking to God, saying, hey, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I recognize my need for you in my life. And then we're going to practice accepting his grace through communion. So communion is this tangible thing that we have that God has given us that reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for us and that we are forgiven in him. And then the, uh, bod- the bread is meant to represent his body broken for us. And so as we um, move into a time of worship and communion, I want you to remember and reflect on that. You can take time to confess personally if you'd like and then uh, remember the grace and the love that Jesus has shown us on the cross for all areas of our life including sexuality. So I'm going to invite the worship team up uh, and I'm going to pray for us and we will head into that time of worship and communion. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you have given us and that you have woven into um, into our world and into our bodies. We thank you that you've created us for intimacy and that you've built your church around being in community with one another so that we can experience that uh, through friendships and through romantic relationships. We pray that you would just, um, yeah, guide us in how we approach physical intimacy, help us to see your wisdom, and also help us to uh, be reflective, and if there's anything we need to repent of, that we would do that, and that we would fully accept your grace and love, that we would not sit in shame, that we would not feel condemned, but that we would just see this as a way of you trying to help us live a more healthy and, and full life, and that we would trust in you and turn to your grace and forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.